Turn with me to John chapter 2. We're going to be looking this morning at the first time Jesus cleansed the temple. You might not have been aware that Jesus did this twice. Once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end of his ministry, right before he was crucified. This time is right at the beginning of his ministry, just after he has performed his miracle of turning water into wine, his first miracle. He then proceeds to Jerusalem after uh, spending some time in Capernaum. And throws out a bunch of people, a bunch of animals, and a bunch of stuff out of the temple. And this is an inspiring passage. The second time he does it is also inspiring. Um, And it's no accident that he does it both at the beginning and at the end. In a sense, it's his start to his work here is saying, hey, listen up. And then at the end, him saying, you didn't listen. But as we look at this particular instance where he cleanses the temple, we're not talking about washing it with water, right? We're talking about washing it with a whip. We're going to answer two questions. The first one is pretty straightforward. Why did Jesus do this? And the second one ought to be as obvious to us anytime we're reading the Bible. But it's easy for us to forget. What does it matter for us? What does it mean to us that Jesus did this? So please stand for the reading of God's word from John chapter 2, verses 12 through 22. After this, he, being Jesus, went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. He made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. 
So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So why did Jesus cleanse the temple? Well, ultimately, it's because he had zeal for his father's house. It's a straightforward reason. Zeal for his father's house. Now, can you imagine? This has been going on year after year for decades. This improper use of the temple. These improper actions taking place at the temple. And Jesus has been going up to the temple at least once a year, his whole life, right? We don't know how much time Jesus spent in Jerusalem necessarily throughout the rest of his life, but we do know that he was there regularly as he fulfilled the commands of the law with regard to sacrifices, that his parents fulfilled the law with regard to him through bringing him up as a child at eight days to be circumcised. And so Jesus has spent quite a bit of time in Jerusalem, quite a bit of time at the temple. Even as a young man, we hear that he didn't want to leave Jerusalem when his parents left. And he said, didn't you know I had to be at my father's house? So he's seen the temple lots of times. He's seen the things that take place there lots of times. And he's been waiting for this day. Because this is not some, this is not some sort of a uh, spur of the moment kind of thing. He did not suddenly, for one minute, have zeal for the house of his father and before that, not have any zeal, right? So for 30 years, Jesus is going to Jerusalem and being frustrated, angered by what he sees taking place in the temple. And now as he begins his ministry... Zeal for the house of the Lord consumes him. What is that zeal? What does zeal mean? Well, there's no way to move animals without being energetic. If you've ever seen cows standing where they want to stand, and think, well, I'll just push him out of my way. How much does a cow weigh? Do you, do you move a cow with a, little, with a little push, a little pat? No. Maybe you can scare a cow, but even scaring a cow out of your way is, requires you to be energetic, right? 
what's my point? Well, my point is, this is not a peaceful activity. You understand? This is absolute mayhem. He drove the people out with the scourge, the whip, right, along with all of the animals that they had. You know what that would look like? Do you know what that would sound like? And do you know what it would take on the part of Jesus in order to create that event? This is not, hey, you, to one person. You, go outside. Take your cow with you. Right? Oxen. Sheep, too. Imagine how loud this, this would have been. And then, turning over tables. Filled with money. Coins, right? Quite the, quite the noise, right? What happens when you dump out a thing of change? Loud. Dump it all over the floor. Dump a table of them over. All the piles mixed together and a mess on the ground. This is zeal. You don't use a whip without enthusiasm unless you're not using it as a whip. Right? You have to move your arm fast to make a whip be a whip. This is an energetic attack on the wickedness that was taking place in the temple. And there was no way for Jesus to do it without engaging in what looked like a violent attack. It's so shocking that nobody even, nobody even fought back. You got all these people who are part of this that Jesus is driving out and like, what is this guy doing? Okay, I'm leaving, I'm leaving. And finally, they ask him, what sign do you show, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Well, Jesus was zealous And what was he zealous for? The disciples remembered the passage of Scripture, prophecy, saying, zeal for your house will consume me. What does it mean? Beyond zeal, we've, we've covered zeal, right? I know what zeal looks like now. <clears throat> what does it mean to be zealous for the house of the Lord. Well, what it means is that Jesus wanted his father's house to be what it was supposed to be. 
You understand? To be what it was supposed to be. And what was the house of the Lord supposed to be? A place of worship? A place of prayer? Instead, they had made it into a place of business or a den of robbers, as he says the next time to them when he does it. Now, our memory verse this week as a church was 1 Timothy 6, 6 and 7. And it starts off, but godliness actually is a means of what? Great gain. But right before that, Paul talks about constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Here you have men who are engaged in trade, making gain, making profit on the holiness of others making a trade out of godliness. Okay? These men that Jesus cleared out of the temple would have been very careful to understand and be able to convincingly explain the necessity of everybody obeying the commands related to the temple that they were making money off of. Do you see? Because what, was, what were the commands? Well, there were commands about what you had to sacrifice and the quality of the animal. And here you had in the temple the animals approved, already examined, ready for the sacrifice, right? And only a minor markup for the convenience and the guarantee that these are acceptable animals. Right? You can imagine how there's conflict of interest here, isn't there? And what else? Well, you had to give, you had to give a certain amount. There was a certain coin that you needed to give, and everyone's using Roman coins, so you need money changers, right? So doesn't it make sense to just provide that service within the temple? But what's really going on? Well, Jesus can see. He's no dummy. He knows what's going on. The claim of godliness being what's motivating these things doesn't impress him at all. What he desires is that the house of the Lord will be as it's supposed to be. Focused on the worship of God. Focused on prayer to him. And not the distracting course of business taking place. Not being abused to make money. For the powerful. 
It's supposed to be a place of worship where God is glorified. Now the temple, all this centers around the temple. The temple is where this takes place. The temple is where the arguably one of the greatest confusions that the disciples had centers around the glory of the temple. Okay, but Jesus is not confused about the temple or the nature of the temple. Jesus understands perfectly what the temple is, what its purpose is, how its purpose is going to change at the end of his ministry. Jesus understands all of this stuff. Jesus is not making a big deal out of the location or of the building itself. Jesus is making a big deal out of the work that was to be accomplished there. The work of worship. The work of prayer. He was making a big deal out of not having things conflicting with that work. Distracting from those purposes. He was making a big deal out of the fact that it was his father's house and that his father was to receive the glory. That that's where all of the pomp and circumstance of the temple, all of the sacrifice, all of the commands were focused. At the center, at the heart of the temple, was the ark and the cherubim, the mercy seat, right? The place where God dwells on earth. That's what makes the temple important. That's what makes the ark important. Not the things that the people, like you and I, are tempted to think makes it important. Okay? This is the temple. This is what Jesus cleansed. He removed out from its midst anything that didn't have to do with glorifying his Father. Anything that conflicted with that work. Now, as I already said, they ask him by what authority he does this. <clears throat> and he responds by talking about the temple. Right? He says, destroy the temple this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. And they think he's insane, right? It took 46 years to build this. You're going to build it up and you're going to rebuild it in three days? Now I just want you to stop there for a second. And I want you to understand that this is the nature of people who demand a sign from God. Okay? Think about that. Why do they demand a sign? 
ostensibly it's because they want proof that he has the authority to do this. In other words, they want a miracle. They want proof from God. They want an act of God. That's the only thing that would satisfy them, right? An act of God. And yet when Jesus begins to talk about an act of God, what do they do? They mock. Do you see the irony behind that? And this is what you'll run into with mockers today who deny that there is a God, who deny that he has revealed himself to us through creation, through his word. They demand a sign. Well, if God is really God, why doesn't he fill in the blank, right? And as soon as you begin to talk about what he has done, the signs that he has given, what do they do? They mock. Why? Because they don't want a sign. They're unwilling to hear from God. And what they want is an excuse to reject his work. In other words, this is a this is just a bare excuse to deny what Jesus has just done as valid. They're, all they're looking for is an excuse of rejecting Jesus' cleansing of the temple. That's the only reason that they talk about a sign in the first place. It's not because they have tender consciences and they want to know what the truth is and they're unsure about whether this Jesus character really should be doing this and whether his message is really true. They know that the message is true. The message being the message of the cleansing of the temple. Right? They know the message is true. They know what's been going on there is wrong. They know what the abuses of it have been. Right? They know something should be done about it. And now somebody's finally done something about it, but they don't like it. They want to have the continued benefit of not having to think about God and actually worshiping him and glorifying him and turning to him in prayer, but instead being able to turn aside the ceremony to personal profit and gain, and for there to be no need for their life to change in any way. <clears throat> this is what they truly desire. And so because of that desire, they need some reason to reject what Jesus has done. And so the excuse is, well, you can't, we're not going to accept what you've done unless you give us a sign. And so Jesus says, okay, here's a sign for you. Tear down the temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. You could be confused in thinking that Jesus, like they did, was talking about the physical temple building, right? Jesus is intentionally confusing 
them. And yet, would it be any more miraculous for Jesus to have rebuilt that building in three days than for him to raise up his body from the grave after three days? No, that would be less of a miracle, wouldn't it? (coughs) Excuse me. That would be less of a miracle. So Jesus cleanses the temple, and then he begins talking about the temple, and he's talking about something else. What's he talking about? He's talking about his body. This is where we begin to transition into talking about why this matters for us. Okay? We see why Jesus has done it. Now, what does it matter for us? What does it mean for us? Well, when Jesus changes from talking about the temple building to talking about his body, that's a clue for us about why this matters today still. Because we don't have a temple building, right? And this building... Can't even, can't even be called a church in the inappropriate sense that most built church buildings are called churches. Okay? So we need to make it beyond the same confusion today that they needed to make it beyond. No building is a church. This is why... the... Uh, I think, it was, I think it was Max Carell in Bloomington who started referring to the church building as the church house. This is why I really find delightful the way that the Ethiopian church referred to the buildings that they built, that they met in. They called them prayer houses. Why? Well, because that's where they gathered to pray. And what was, what, was the house, what was the temple of the Lord supposed to be? A house of prayer. Right? And what had it become instead? A den of robbers, of thieves, and a place of business. And so the same problem can happen today, <clears throat> not with our buildings, because today we have to recognize that the buildings are just that, buildings. The temple of the Lord has changed. It is no longer a structure. Right? What is the temple of the Lord? Well, Jesus speaks of his body as being the temple. And he also speaks of the church being his body. You read that in his word, right? So today, we see and understand that God has made his dwelling place among his people, just as he did in the Old Testament. But we see it no longer through a building, but through his people, the church themselves. We have been united 
to Jesus Christ. We have been given his spirit, and thus we, the church, have become his temple. Ephesians 2, 19-22 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So individually, having the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, we are temples, our bodies are temples of the Lord, we read in 1 Corinthians, right? But then as the body as a whole, we are being knit together, built up into the temple, the dwelling place of God Most High. And so what does the fact that Jesus cleansed the temple have to do with us today? Well, it means that we must be clean. Right? That we must not fall into the same errors that they had fallen into. And so, of course, we should learn not to be like the men in the temple, using the gathering of Jesus' people as an opportunity to enrich ourselves. How many people have been focused on making money for themselves in the church that they choose? This is a common occurrence. Right? Or in deciding to be a part of a church in the first place. Ah, this is, this is a, an effective way of increasing my real estate business. Joining a church. So at its most basic, yes, that's, that applies in the, in the very simple sense of not making church life or the gathering of God's people into an opportunity to make money to transact business, right? <clears throat> and together with that, that we should be wary of trading on the fact that we are a Christian in order to gain personally for our business, for our work. And that we should avoid making the gathering of the church body into a time of transacting business. You know, I'm very leery about, oh, well, we'll be together on Sunday, you know, I'll just buy it from you then, kind of things. Why? Not because I have some sort of... <clears throat> uh, legalistic principle against that happening, but because I don't want anything to distract us from the reason why we are gathering. Right? I don't want our minds to be elsewhere on the things of business and of profit and of making and selling and of <clears throat> the temptations that go along with that. 
But these things are the, the simplest, the most basic of things that we learn from Jesus' cleansing of the temple with regard to ourselves. More importantly, we need to learn to have zeal for God's house. Jesus is our model in this passage, not in making a whip and in chasing animals out of the temple, but in his zeal. The reason he was able to do that is not, not because he was just pushed one step too far. And he just had to blow up. Right? It's because he had zeal. Holy zeal. And what was his zeal for? That the house of the Lord would be a place of worship. In other words, that we, the body of Christ, the temple of the Lord, would be filled with worship. And what does worship mean except to give glory to God's name? And so if we have zeal like Jesus had zeal. It means that our great desire is that God's name would be glorified in his church. (coughs) Excuse me. And so our zeal is also for the glory of God's name. How many ways are there in which the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, are denigrated, torn down, made light of in our presence? Do we have any zeal that the Lord's name would be honored and glorified rather than made light of? rather than turned into something of no importance. Where does this happen? It happens everywhere. You ought not to be embarrassed by the wickedness that you find in your entertainment because other people are around. You ought to be filled with holy zeal that rejects as entertainment wickedness. Do you see The difference? (coughs) 
It's telling that as the soccer coach of six, seven, and eight-year-olds, I found it difficult to say to them that they were not to take the Lord's name in vain. Would that be difficult? And yet if that's difficult for me, I wonder what it is like for you at work, at the park, wherever you happen to be, as you interact with people who are abusing God's holy name. Do we care? Well, how else does this happen? It's not just by people taking the Lord's name in vain. The worst kind of dragging of God's glory through the mud is when Christians, men and women who claim the name of Jesus Christ, are doing things like profiting off of that claim rather than worshiping him in spirit and in truth. You see, much more of the time it's people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ who are, through their actions, leading people astray, denying the master who saved them, rejecting his commands, leading others into sin themselves, this is the kind of thing that ought to fire us up. That we ought to have zeal in opposing. That we should never let go unchallenged in the presence of unbelievers. That we should correct with zeal saying, no, that is not what Jesus Christ taught his disciples to do. Do you see what I'm saying? We should not stand for corruption in the household of faith. This is why Paul writes, Paul writes, let judgment begin and let it begin with the household of faith. This is why the church has been given, one of the reasons why the church has been given the power of the keys in church discipline. Why? so that we can cleanse the temple. So that we may have zeal that is holy like the Lord Jesus. And so the church must discipline those who are dragging Christ's name 
through the mud. And you must reject those people who are blatantly in sin. You must reject their actions. You must call them to stop. Finally, we need to be rid of the sin within ourselves. We need to be rid of the sin within ourselves. And so, it begins there, doesn't it? Because we can't we can't call to repentance people who are committing the same sins as we ourselves led them into. Can we? It's awfully hard. Not you can't do it without what? With what? Yeah, you're either going to have a bad con- you're going to have a bad conscience either way, but you can't do it without repenting, without pointing out your own wickedness, right? You can say, "I shouldn't have done that," and you shouldn't either. And this is why we must start with ourselves. Now, I've got some good news for you. Some of you think that it's hopeless. That the sin is impossible to root out of your heart. That you can never quit sinning. That the temptation is too strong for you. You're wrong. And that's the good news. You have the authority to tear down the strongholds within your own heart. And that authority comes from Jesus Christ. And the power to accomplish it is the same power that gave rise to his resurrection after three days when the temple was destroyed and he raised it up again in three days. That is the power of God at work within you. That is the sign that we have been given, that Jesus Christ cleanses his people. Do you see the hope that that is? Do you see the beauty of the fact that Jesus took a whip and cleansed the temple? And that when they said, by what authority, he says, By the authority in me. And the sign that I will give is to raise this temple up after it's been destroyed. And this is why Paul says if Christ hasn't been raised, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Why? Because we don't have any hope. But it's precisely because he was raised that we have hope. Hope for what? Hope to be cleansed. 
we have been united to him. He gives us his spirit to dwell within us, and so we are the temple of the Lord. Put to death, therefore, the sin that remains. Do it with zeal. Use a whip or whatever else it takes. You understand? No, not self-beating. That's of no benefit, right? But what does it mean? It means that it's okay to look like a fool in fighting against your sin. What do you think Jesus looked like cleaning out the temple? Yeah, there was dignity there, wasn't there? The dignity of one who is in authority. And yet, the scene is ridiculous, isn't it? But what's ridiculous about it? What's ridiculous about it is all of the animals and the idiots and the money and the and the birds. That's what's ridiculous about it. And that's what he's getting rid of. And so will you look ridiculous putting your sin to death? Yeah. But don't let anybody mock you and embarrass you into stopping putting your sin to death. Cleansing yourself. To stop is what? To leave the ridiculous stuff. That's what's, that's what's mockable. Your sin. And don't ever believe the lie that you'll never be able to do it. People will tell you that. Satan will tell you that. He'll accuse you. You don't have what it takes. No, you, you don't have what it takes, but God has given you what it takes. How do we know? Because he raised Jesus Christ, and he is the one that is at work within you, both to will and to work his good pleasure. And so we cleanse the temple of the Lord and make it holy and devote it to his work. Amen?